Previously on the Scottish Broadcasting Century. On episode 48, we went north of the border for the first broadcasting from Scotland. So just to recap what's already happened this year back in 1923. Graham Stewart, author of Scotland On Air. The Daimler station, 2BP, as part of the Glasgow Motor Show, on air in January and ended on Saturday the 3rd of February. Now, two days before that station closed... They broadcast an announcement on behalf of the British Broadcasting Company to inform listeners that the permanent broadcasting station for Glasgow would probably be in operation at the beginning of March. Now, fortunately, the airwaves didn't stay silent for long because two Glasgow retailers who'd been experimenting with their own amateur radio station, they seized the opportunity and decided to provide a sort of fill-in service to bridge the gap. This was 5MG, Milligan's Wireless Station. This time, March the 6th, 1923, 100 years ago from the day this podcast lands, the launch of the 6th BBC station, Glasgow 5SC. We'll have the speeches, clips, details. You know we've got them. And we'll hear a little of Auntie Kathleen as well. Also known back in the day as Auntie Cyclone. Hello, children. Well, it's Tuesday again. And with it comes another story about Bran the Cat and also a trip to our friends at Brayside, Maine. Slowly filling Britain, it's the British Broadcasting Century. Hello, this is Paul Carenza calling. This is Glasgow calling. Hello, hello, it's Paul Carenza with you for the launch of Glasgow 5SC, the first BBC station north of the border. Now I must stress, this is not a BBC podcast. On this episode, Tony Curry, broadcaster, author of the Radio Time story and founder of Radio 6. And Graham Stewart, BBC journalist and author of Scotland On Air, A Century of Scottish Broadcasting. That book's out in April, and you'll hear him on this episode. A century ago today, if you're listening on day of release, the BBC landed in Scotland. For the first 22 years of the century, my home was in Scotland, and for all but the last three, it was in the College Church Manse in Glasgow. All right, so this station launch meant a lot to John Reith. In fact, Reith's mum came to visit the Glasgow 5SC studio quite a lot. This station mattered to Reith, and indeed the rest of the top brass. Reith was to be intricately involved in the BBC's sixth station, and including its launch. Many of the arrangements were actually quite straightforward. Graham Stewart, author of Scotland On Air, A Century of Scottish Broadcasting, is due out next month. By the end of January 1923, they already had permission to erect a transmitter at the Port Dundas electricity station, which was just about a mile outside the city centre. They had authorisation from the post office um, to broadcast on a wavelength of 415 metres, and they'd also been allocated the call sign 5SC. Now, we don't entirely know how these call signs were allocated, nor exactly what they signified. Um, I suspect SC stands for Scotland, but it is a bit weird that they already knew there was going to be at least one other station in Scotland, in Aberdeen. So I'm not sure why Glasgow got the SC in the title, but there we have it. 
Ahead of the launch, Reith wrote copious letters, generally beginning with, I think you know my father. I'm writing to you personally as we have vacancies for a station manager. Uh, we need a publicist. Uh, we need a building. Did you know my father, by the way? Reverend George Reith, moderator of the Presbyterian Church. Yes, Reith was pulling in favours left, right and centre. They had the offer of studio premises in the top floor attic of a household goods business in Bath Street. Now, this business was owned by George Garscadden. He was one of the pioneers behind one of the earlier experimental stations, 5MG. The first ones were in the top of a flat in Bath Street. In fact, my father owned the bottom part of the flat. He had his offices there, and the, the BBC rented the top bit for studios. It was just a big room hung with grey curtains, which got awfully dirty after a while. On the 9th of January 1923, a small advert appears in the situation's vacant columns of some of the newspapers, and it says, Glasgow Broadcasting, wanted, station director, young, versatile musician, thoroughly acquainted with Scottish musical tastes and the concert world, must possess ability to organise musical, educational and instructional programmes. Now, that emphasis on music very important because the majority of the BBC's early broadcasts did consist of music and live music at that. So that emphasis on musical qualifications was crucial. Now, of course, there were many professionals in Scotland who had experience of live music. That wasn't difficult. And they did get more than 200 applications. But only one candidate had the additional experience of organising radio programmes. And that was Herbert Carruthers. He was 31 years old. He was conductor and organist at Glasgow's Park Church. And he'd recently been involved with that experimental station 5MG run by George Garscadden and Frank Milligan. So he had a bit of experience of broadcasting. And that is probably the reason why he was chosen above all the other candidates. Before its early March launch, though, there was a lot in the papers about its plans and thanks to newspaper detective Andrew Barker, we can bring you a few of them. That February the 3rd, uh, the Scotsman, that's a newspaper, not a random Scotsman, linked to the anticipated launch date with the upcoming National Opera Company Glasgow season. In other words, it wanted to say you should listen to radio sets because you'll be able to get the opera to you. There is no reason why every Scottish wireless amateur should not have a full fortnight of grand opera within his own room, the paper said. So it looks like London's opera outside broadcasts were a prime motivator for people to listen to radio, to buy radio sets, which of course was the ultimate aim of the company before the British Broadcasting Corporation. The directors were, of course, the heads of electrical companies who were making wireless sets, Marconi's, General Electric and so on. Now, there's one thing that we've not really done much of on this podcast, well, many things we've not done, you know, juggling, hardcore rap, palm readings. But a particular thing I'm talking about now is comparing with the American broadcasting story. I've stayed a little bit quiet about that because I think really I'm a bit envious. Americans got there first, a year or two early. But at this point in the papers, there's a little hint that Britain was catching up and indeed had overtaken American broadcasting. The recent broadcasting of opera in London created much interest in the wireless world, particularly in the United States, where, though broadcasting has already been highly developed before any attempt was made to popularise it in this country, there had hitherto been no attempts to issue anything except from stations. In other words, commercial radio stations across America were drowning each other out by just shouting about shaving foam and the like, really. They were there to advertise things. So the London opera outside broadcasts were influential in America, and certainly here 
in Glasgow in trying to encourage radio users. So the importance of music for the early broadcasting company stations can't be overstated. And big live music events were a great way to launch a station. The British National Opera Company had a Glasgow season in March of 1923. So the idea was, let's get 5SC on the air just ahead of that and we can relay some of their concerts. But as time went on, they realised that actually to do full justice to the production, it's probably best that we have the station fully tried and tested, fully up and running for some time before the opera season opened. So 5SE's opening date was actually brought forward by a fortnight to Tuesday the 6th of March 1923. Now that's fine, but it triggered this frantic rush to complete all the work on time. And in fact, it wasn't until mid-February, once the, the Cardiff station launch was out of the way, that Reith and his chief engineer, Peter Eckersley, were able to come up to Glasgow and inspect their new studio premises at 202 Bath Street. So there were weeks of updates in the press. And for more of them, you can join our British Broadcasting Century Facebook group, where I'm sure our newspaper detective, Andrew Barker, will continue to illuminate us with almost daily updates of what went on exactly 100 years ago right now. The press had every detail from installation of the transmitting station at Port Dundas Power Station to how the microphone in the Glasgow studio would look, mounted on a pedestal in the concert room, with a small movable platform a few inches high to keep the artist in position. And that's the problem with booking singer-dancers. They move. From the Glasgow Herald. Adjoining the studio is the operating room, from which, by means of a small window, the operator will be able to watch the artist. The operator will be in direct telephone communication with Port Dundas and will be listening in continuously. So essentially, that's exactly the model of a standard radio studio today, with the glass and everything. There was also early talk in the papers of the idea of simultaneous broadcasting and relay stations. That would come in later on in 1923. There's been a suggestion that anything about standing interest in the London programme may be relayed at Glasgow and retransmitted from there, but not for some time. So this Scottish pre-launch hubbub was telling potential listeners what to expect. Broadcasting from Glasgow will proceed on the lines already made familiar by the English stations. Yeah, and Welsh. There'll be a nightly programme of music, news and stories, but it's expected that, in view of Scottish sentiment, the station will be entirely closed on Sundays. Well, when Reith gets his way, that'll be largely the case elsewhere as well. Reith Sundays, coming soon to get you to church. And amazingly, only five days before the opening, Carruthers is called down to London to have dinner with Reith at the Cavendish Club and get his instructions on how to run the station. So they were actually quite simple instructions. He was told to acquire a library of music and engage a small number of musicians. Now, as luck would have it, on his way back to the railway station to get his train back to Glasgow, Carruthers found a music shop which had closed down. So he knocks on the door, he sees a light at the back of the shop, and he makes a noise. Someone opens the door, and he explained to the shop owner, look, I'm setting up a radio station, and I'd like to buy your music. And he bought the whole catalogue of music in that shop, got his train home, and that was all the preparation he needed to start the Glasgow station 5SC. So as for the launch itself, well, Reith journeyed Scotland-bound on March the 5th, 1923, the day before the launch. And on that same day, maybe on his way up there, in fact, he engaged Corbett Smith for Cardiff. More on Major Arthur Corbett Smith, an unusual character, in a couple of episodes' time when we reach the point he actually starts his 
rather crazy work in the Cardiff station. Anyway, that's enough about Wales. Um, same day in Manchester, uh, March the 5th, this is 2ZY, that station there. They begin nightly orchestral music, their own outside broadcasts. They had actually relied a lot on gramophone records until now. They'd had some criticism for it, in fact. Manchester's always spinning some discs, of course, still to this day. Manchester's reputation as the home of music, the home of live music, especially broadcast orchestral music. Well, that started then, March the 5th, 1923, and it's still true today, the home of the BBC Concert Orchestra. Now, Manchester's broadcasting of live music was largely thanks to its fancy new microphones that it just got, called the Photophone. This had a mirror and a horn and a sheet and a pile of books that you'd stand on uh, so singers wouldn't go dancing off, you know, just the same as in Glasgow. And the transmitter room had lights, uh, little lights that would light up to say, speak louder, speak softer, move forward towards the microphone, step backwards away from the microphone. There were other lamps identifying instrument or singer. I mean, nowadays we have one light that says you're on air. And when the light goes off, you're off air. But back then, there were nearly a dozen lights that you had to remember what they all meant. So you knew what to do and how to say it. Anyway, that's Manchester. We're not here to talk about them. We're here to talk about Glasgow. And Reith and most of the BBC board of directors were on the way there. Lord Gainford, Sir William Noble, Basil Binion, HMP, Archibald McKinstry. And these are largely the same people who had discussed and debated broadcasting into being the summer before when the government brought the electric company bosses together to hammer out how broadcasting could work. Uh, Reef records in his diary that when he came in the next morning, that's the day they're due to launch, he writes in his diary, things were in an awful mess, but Thompson, the engineer, said it would be all right by the evening. Now, I think he must have been satisfied with this because... He then spent the rest of the day entertaining. He had lunch at the Western Club with one of the company's directors, Sir William Noble. Uh, he had tea at ten past three in the afternoon with the company's chairman, Lord Gainford. And then after a short visit to the transmitter at Port Dundas just to check that everything was OK there, he hosted an official dinner for some civic dignitaries at the St Enoch Hotel, which was in the city centre. And then when the VIPs finished their meal at the St Enoch Hotel, they all made their way to Rex House up in Bath Street. They climbed up the three flights of stairs to squeeze into this small, stuffy studio with the curtains on the walls and the felt on the floor. And... Uh... There's a wee corner window in the studio and the engineers, there were no lights for the first two or three weeks and the engineers would look through the window and thumbs up when to begin and uh, thumbs down when to stop. <laughs> they sandwiched in with the station orchestra. There was a pipe band there as well, spilling out into the adjoining corridor. So it was a particularly stuffy atmosphere, let's just say. The studio at 5SC was so small that legend has it a guest accordionist one night had to play vertically. Now there's an image. But as for that very first night, it was bagpipes, of course. How else would you begin Scotland's first BBC station? Tony Curry, broadcaster and writer, picks up the tale. At 7pm on the 6th of March, 1923... The BBC's first Scottish station, 5SC, made its debut with a pipe band playing Hey Johnny Coke. They were squeezed into the single, cramped, dark, Hessian line studio together with John Reith, who announced the first programme. I like to think that there's a link between the BBC 
and a nursery in a house at the top of Linder Street at the beginning of the century. Ah, that's where Reith grew up, in this manse house, ruled by his minister father. George Reith had died late 1919, left a strong mark on John, who was his seventh-born. Isn't there something mystical and wizard-like about the seventh-born child? Anyway, I don't know. So, when I went from Scotland to the BBC, having to explain what the initials BBC meant and, before long, what the BBC itself stood for, I took a great deal of what a Scottish home and a manse at that could give. My fault that I didn't take much more. This is from years later, but still an insight into Reith's attitude to broadcasting and Glasgow. Reith's words can sound a little combative, antagonistic, stern. As to broadcasting... Mostly you think of it in terms of whether it gives you what you want. Enough of what you want, when you want it. Taken for granted, like so much else. All right, all right. Like the starry heavens above and the moral law within. But the story of the starry heavens can be a bestseller. And though little notice has been taken of the moral law in the first half of the century... I have a feeling that there's a surprise coming for us in the second half and that we had better look out for it. Well, yes, let wreath be wreath. Lord Gainford then, the BBC chairman, assured listeners that going forward there would be children's programmes, news, sport, politics, business and... The dancing community would be given just enough ragtimes, foxtrots, two-steps and waltzes to wish for more. Then a non-broadcasting person, the Lord Provost of Glasgow, spoke and said how surprised he was that it took the BBC quite so long to get to Glasgow. Centre of electrical and engineering science in a place of no mean reputation from the point of view of concerts, theatres and entertainments of all kinds. There was also a statement of good wishes from the Prime Minister, Bona Law. That launch night, orchestral Scottish melodies followed. The Thistle by Middleton was the first piece played. Soloists then joined and then Sir Donald McAllister, Principal of the University of Glasgow, spoke. Reith had indeed managed to get the university on board very early on. And actually, the BBC found Glaswegian locals a lot easier to get on side than some other stations in other regions regarding using their premises and broadcasting events. So Glasgow University jumped on board about education possibilities with wireless. Broadcasting to schools was piloted in Glasgow before rolling out across the network. And many Glasgow University professors gave early talks. But the principal came first, concluding with a quote from the parable of the sower, the original broadcast. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. There was applause in the studio, and then more music. Then Sir William Noble spoke, saying, The head of the broadcasting department at the BBC is a Scot from Glasgow. Two of the six directors are Scots, and the other four directors love Scotch. There was apparently laughter. Sir William Noble then claimed that the Hebrides would be enjoying this broadcasting almost as easily as the city. Then that launch night, they closed down for half an hour so that listeners could tune in to London, where, in fact, they'd have heard a talk on the genius of Sir Christopher Wren. I'm not quite sure why they thought listeners would particularly want to hear that. Maybe there's a lot of architecture fans in the Glasgow area. And that was a pattern that was repeated quite frequently in the early weeks when another station had a particularly attractive programme on offer. The local station would close down to enable people, usually with more expensive valve sets, to tune in to one of the broadcasting company's other stations. 5SC then crackled back into life for its first news bulletin. That was at 9.40pm, dictated like they all were, by a phone from London to a typist at 5SC. That first night's concert concluded with music such as Colonel Bogey's March. And then the evening ended, as it would every night thereafter, with the obligatory playing of God Save the King.
and satisfied that the whole thing went off well, Wraith caught the half-past ten sleeper train to London. That opening programme could, of course, be heard in homes around Scotland, but also at wireless demonstrations in some restaurants in Glasgow. That's what you'd hear, and at a local cinema. We reckon there were around 3,000 sets in use in the Glasgow area alone. The true audience, though, obviously much greater, because owners would invite round family and friends and neighbours, and they would gather round the speakers or they would use duplicate headphones to hear the broadcasts. But also the opening night was also conveyed to big crowds in halls and restaurants and picture houses. I mean, the Glasgow Corporation, which was the local council, they invited a large audience to a demonstration in the Berkeley Hall. They had loudspeakers erected, an indoor aerial was slung above the heads of the crowd. And again, they weren't used to, to wireless. This was a novel thing. Here they were sitting in a hall. So when they heard music and they heard speeches you would do what you would normally do in a concert hall. You would break out into spontaneous applause after hearing each item, even though it wasn't actually being performed in the hall. What a show. Some speakers, in fact, left the BBC studio and then joined this audience up the road in Barclay Hall to hear how the rest of the broadcast went. The reaction to this broadcast was ecstatic. I mean, people listening in literally cheered when they heard the sounds emanate from the wireless sets. Uh, I think it seemed magical, almost spooky, that such a feat was possible. There was a newspaper report of one household where a group of women, they were so incredulous that this was possible, that they actually went round the back of the building just to check there wasn't some secret wire relaying the entertainment from the studio to their house. Wireless had suddenly appeared on the scene fully developed. Um, as, as the Dundee Courier described it, it was though an aeroplane sailing over our own city had been the first definite intimation that men could fly. It was the same sort of thing. People weren't aware of what wireless transmission was. So for it to suddenly appear in Glasgow was really quite awe-inspiring. The columns that the Glasgow Herald gave over to it on launch day were flanked by adverts for wireless sets by most of those big six companies represented by the BBC board. So General Electric, Western Electric, the Marconi phone, even the smaller Burndet. Their bosses were directors of the BBC there in town to see Glasgow 5SC onto the air. And in the press, it was all adverts by our wireless sets. The next morning, the Glasgow Herald judged the launch outstanding. It was a wonderful and unique experience, the newspaper said. A thrilling and moving moment in the great drama of scientific achievement, that harnessing of the power of nature to the services of humanity. Swifter than Mercury from High Olympus, the strains of the pipes bore their message to John O'Groats and Maidenkirk, ushering in a new medium of social life and of expanding civilization. But first impressions were deceiving. A brief diary entry less than a week later was ominous. He wrote, the station is doing badly. So Peter Eckersley, his engineer, was immediately sent to Glasgow to try and sort things out. By the end of the month, Reith returned himself and, as he notes in his diary, stirred things up. I am not at all sure Carruthers is going to be satisfactory. Now, Reith, in later years, admitted that selecting the right candidates to staff 
the radio stations was a matter of trial and error and that many mistakes were made in the early days. There's one memo I found that he wrote about 15 years later and he reflected on the fact that Carruthers was, in his words, quite inadequate as station director in Glasgow, but he was the sort of man we were then engaging for want of a better alternative. I mean, one of the things that everyone involved with 5SC said about those early days is that they were amateurish. I mean, they knew that at the time. And certainly, a few years later, it was quite obvious with the progress of broadcasting that what they attempted in those early days was pretty basic. Well, it was great fun. And, of course, very, very amateurish. We just went out and bought music every day for the programmes, brought it in, put fairy tale books on the piano and seized a book and just read. It was all very, very primitive and very amateurish. Here's Tony Curry. Children's and women's programme organiser, the effervescent Kathleen Garscadden, became anti-cyclone for the children's corner broadcasts and later gave so many Scots their first break on the radio in children's hours, We Want to Broadcast. Before the days of radio, people didn't know much about anticyclone. Perhaps sailors at sea knew about weather conditions and anticyclones, but the ordinary man in the street knew nothing about it. Therefore, when weather forecasts began, people were awfully interested and, and listened to every detail. And anticyclone was literally a new phrase. So that when we started as children's art characters, we, we called them comic names. I was anticyclone, somebody else was anti-macassar. And, and we just made up funny names with anti before them. But um, the corporation was much more dignified and didn't like the idea of children addressing us as uncles and aunties. Well, Mind you, it has stuck to me <laughs> to this day. Kathleen Garscadden there was on air from the second day of 5SC. Um, we know, of course, from episode 48, she was on the air before the BBC as well, and she was a titan of broadcasting for decades to come. Still there in the 1960s, and even guesting on a children's BBC show with Sarah Green and Florida Benjamin and Mike Reed and Keith Chegwin in the early 1980s. It's on YouTube. It's well worth a look. We'll put a link in the show notes. From the start, 5SC gave listeners plenty for their 10-shilling licence fee. In the first month, there was opera from Glasgow's Coliseum, music from the BBC Station Orchestra, and a dramatisation of Sir Walter Scott's novel Rob Roy. This was a massive production, the most ambitious yet. It had sound effects, an orchestra, and a live military band. So popular, they repeated Rob Roy a couple of months later, in October 1923, was the first regional drama to be simultaneously broadcast throughout all of the stations. Glasgow 5SC had the first studio opera of all the BBC stations with Act 1 of the Valkyrie. Glasgow also was the first station to broadcast a whole Greek play with Sophocles' Antigone. That was thanks to Glasgow University, who acted it for the BBC. It's possible that at this point, the B were realising that the theatre managers were tricky to get on side. So once they got the university to play ball, maybe they could use them to cast their dramatic plays. Soon there were programmes in Gaelic, schools radio, election broadcasts and, of course, the Children's Hour with Kathleen's alter ego, Anticyclone. Hello, Uncle Bert. Hello, Uncle Mungo. Hello, Uncle Alec. Hello, children. Ah, that'll be Mungo Dewar and Alexander Patterson. Uncle Mungo and Uncle Alec. Children's Hour, but also the assistants there at 5SC because, yes, like the other stations, people wore a lot of hats. There's plenty more from Kathleen Garscadden to come in a couple of episodes' time. We'll look at children's programming and indeed some of her women's talks. Oh yes, Kathleen was a star across the BBC in Scotland for many, many decades. <laughs>
So that's Glasgow launched. And tune in next time to see what else was going on in March 1923 across the land, but further south. It's going to be a variety of artists on tour around the different stations. And joining us, a wonderful guest, Geoffrey Holland, from many sitcoms, including Heidi High. Last few episodes, we've been getting these podcasts to you exactly 100 years after the moment we're talking about. So this episode lands on March the 6th, 2023, but we're talking about March the 6th, 1923. We did the same last time with the first political debate on the air. Very nice indeed, but it turns out rather tricky to plan and schedule and get all of the work and research and editing done. Yeah, I've now realised it's a little ambitious, especially when A, I'm trying to get my novel about all of this written as well. It should be out in the next month or two. B, I have other paying work because believe it or not, this podcast does not pay all the bills. Although thank you for those who do support on patreon.com slash Carenza. That does help and urge me on to make more of these. But the main reason for podcast delay is C, the more I dig, the more I research, the more the story grows. It becomes very quickly not as simple as read from history books, not that it ever has been. No sorry. In fact, last week I was at the British Library and I did some digging there. I brought a spade. No, I didn't. Um, but I discovered something really quite exciting. I think it's our biggest discovery yet. Uh, the original story that was the long-lost basis of the first original radio drama. Phyllis Twiggs, The Truth About Father Christmas, aired on December the 24th, 1922. And if you check the history books, generally it will just have that one line that Phyllis Twigg wrote this thing. We don't quite know to what degree it was a drama, a play. There's no script that exists. There's no recording, of course. But the short story does exist, it now turns out. I found it last week in the British Library under Phyllis Twigg's pen name of Moira Main. It's quite a tale. And I look forward to bring it to you properly in about three or four episodes time. I want to feature a proper episode about early radio drama. I've interviewed Professor Tim Crook. He's also been researching Phyllis Twig last year. So more on that soon. But it's an example of how you do a little bit of scratching beneath the surface on this podcast. And it becomes very quickly not just about quoting bits from history books, but actually discovering new slash very, very old things. So the next episode of the podcast will be set in early March. It'll be out, though, a, a little bit later on, in late March or early April. I can't single-handedly turn around research, writing, recording and editing in under a week. I'm really hoping to get back in sync so that, for example, when the Radio Times celebrates its centenary, it will be very nice to have the podcast out about that for then. We will see what we can do. My thanks to Tony Curry and Graham Stewart. Buy their books, The Radio Time Story and Scotland On Air, A Century of Scottish Broadcasting. And also David Pat Walker's marvellous book, The BBC in Scotland, a fantastic resource. And thank you to Andrew Barker, our newspaper detective. Next episode, more on March 1923 with the Ideal Home Exhibition broadcasts, life on tour for variety artists around the BBC stations. And our guest, a star of comedy from Heidi High, You Rang My Lord. And did you know also Dad's Army and It Ain't Half Hot Mum, Geoffrey Holland. If you like the podcast, don't forget we're on Patreon. Extra videos and writings await you. Yours for a few pounds a month to keep this afloat. The free way, of course, to support this is just tell people about us, share online. You can even rate and review us if you'd like. And thank you for listening.
The British Broadcasting Century, nothing to do with the BBC, you know, is presented and produced by Paul Carenza. Original music is by Will Farmer. Archive material is so old, it's generally speaking public domain, but BBC content is used with kind permission. BBC copyright content reproduced courtesy of the British Broadcasting Corporation. All rights are reserved, of course. Stay informed, educated and entertained. Join us next time for variety, outside broadcasts and a laundry basket as we continue to explore March 1923 at the other end of this British Broadcasting Century.